Standing nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. Those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is Tuesday, February the third, two thousand and nine. <laughs> I got up today and I watched C-SPAN Hillary Clinton taking the oath as Secretary of State. A little black pantsuit, smart power to smart people. All power to the people, the smart ones. Anyway, she said all the uh, usual things and took note of the usual suspects. She thanked her husband,、uh, the ex-president Bill Clinton, for、um, quote a life full of all kinds of experiences. Her mother. Tried to laugh at that.、Um, uh, Hillary smiled.、Um, I, I don't know. It's a bit cute there. I, I'm not sure it's funny. Anyway, her acceptance speech was very、uh, heartfelt.、Uh, she spoke of her colleagues in the Senate and how she would be depending on them in her new job as.、Uh, Head of the State Department,、uh, she mentioned especially those senators in appropriations. We all know the Senate Finance Committee is where the buck stops. That's the biggie. That's the one. Last I heard, she will need all the help she can get. The word is, I think I have this correct. I, I have only one, two sources.、Uh, I have it that. The budget for our State Department is one thirteenth the amount that goes to the Defense Department. That department, that is, for every buck, every dollar spent on behalf of diplomacy, foreign relations, our rapport with the world, for every dollar spent in that manner, thirteen dollars are spent. On our military machine, that figures. No surprise there. Let us hope there is some shift. It's all about the、uh, the money, the money. Show me the money today. I want to relax and just read a little more from the president's first book. Brother Barack wrote his autobiography. Long before the political stuff started up, you know, the later books are pretty much、uh, campaign rhetoric.、Uh, but 
his early book, Dreams of My Father, I I find this is a remarkable, remarkable text. I, I just thought, you know, same old, same old, but uh, I am delighted to discover that our president has literary sensibilities. The depth of feeling about our nation's divisions is... Uh, well, he's got all the the shtick of a poet, a prophet. He's particularly concerned about the gulf between rich and poor, the radical, uh, well, the racial divide, and uh, the need for radical change. How is it that we know so little about each other? How is it that, after all these centuries, Americans are still discovering what the other fellow's all about. Uh, the task of all great books, novels, biographies is to help us, to guide us, let us learn what it feels like to be other, to walk in another's shoes, all that good stuff. Back in his 30s, Barack was obsessed with the world's pain. I remember reading here that he he did all the usual uh, black consciousness raising. Uh, he kind of came to the end of Richard Wright and uh, James Baldwin. He said that they hit the wall. The one that he liked the best, the one that he identified with the most, was Malcolm X and, of course, Martin Luther King. I know today in... Uh, the talk of the town New Yorker for February 2nd, 2009. He talks about that book, uh, the book Parting the Waters, the uh, magnificent trilogy about Martin Luther King Jr. And he said to a friend, yes, it's my story. Uh, here's a bit, yes, I, I think this is fascinating. There's only one survivor of the um, March on Washington that is one of the speakers. He was there at the inauguration this year with um, Barack. It's the 11-term representative of Georgia's 5th Congressional District. He was one of the speakers back in um, 63, 64, was it, whenever uh, the March on Washington. He's still among the living, and Obama embraced him and uh, uh, Lewis, yes, John Lewis is his name, squat, bald, and hatless. <laughs> Congratulations, Mr. President, Lewis whispered in his ear. Obama smiled and said, thank you, John, I'll need your prayers. You'll have them, Mr. President, that and all my support. Now, what's interesting is that, of course, King's speech on that occasion was the most eloquent, but... Lewis's was the most radical. Uh, John Lewis, he was just 23 at the time, leader of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In the original draft of his speech, the demand for racial justice and serious revolution, it's what he called it, quote, serious revolution, was so fearless that in the last minutes before the program began, Dr. King... Bayard Rustin, Roy Wilkins, uh, some of the other movement organizers negotiated with him. They wanted him to remove 
any phrases that might offend the Kennedy administration. Uh, Lewis had planned to say, quote, We will march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We shall pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground nonviolently. We shall fragment the South into a thousand pieces and put them back together in the image of democracy, unquote. He had to lose that bit about Sherman's army. <laughs> but the rest of that text uh, uh, left no doubt about Lewis or about uh, his audacious generation. Uh, he capped the speech. The final warning in the speech was, We will not be patient. Looks like he has been patient for a long time. Anyway, there he was at the inauguration to embrace our new prez. Um, you know, uh, this this uh, talk of the town uh, commentary notes that uh, Barack must have made a mental leap to Marion Anderson's defiant concert at the Lincoln Memorial back even further in 1939, before that. Uh, it's the funniest darn thing. I've been talking lately about uh, Marion Robinson, Michelle's mom, and I, <laughs> I make this little little uh, mental slip. I keep saying Marion Anderson. I wonder why. It all kind of melts in my brain, yes. Uh, I liked it, the Sunday uh, coverage on of the Sunday uh, music at the Lincoln Memorial. They did put in a few minutes, just a clip of Marian Anderson. I wish they'd let her sing the whole thing, you know, start to finish. Uh, that would have made me feel better. Uh, anyway, check out the talk of the town if you're interested in John Lewis. Uh, the last of Martin Luther King's group from March on Washington, uh, he led the march across the Edmund Petrus Bridge straight into that blockade, you know, the one set up by the Alabama State Troopers. The first nightstick came down on Lewis's skull. Those troopers used whips, horses, and a hose wrapped in barbed wire. Along with Lewis, 90 demonstrators were injured. At the White House, Lyndon Johnson watched it all on television, deepening his resolve to push the Voting Rights Act. Uh, now, we know that the day before Obama's inauguration would have been King's 80th birthday. John Lewis told a visitor at his office in uh, the Cannon House office building, uh, he said, Barack Obama is what comes at the end of that bridge in Selma. He says Barack has lifted people. Uh, anyway, he goes on to, this piece goes on to talk a lot about uh, John Lewis, his background. Uh, and he says, finally, Barack was born long before he could experience or understand the movement uh, he had to move toward it in his own time. But it's so clear that he digested it, the spirit and the language of the movement. 
the way he made it his own reminds me of a trip I made to South Africa in March of 1994 before the post-apartheid elections. We met with leaders of the African National Congress, young people. Despite their age, they knew everything about the late 50s and 60s in the American South. They knew about the birth of the civil rights movement. They used the same rhetoric. They had the same emotional force. A young South African actor got up and recited a poem by a black slave woman from Georgia. Now that's the way it is with Barack. He absorbed the lessons and the spirit of the civil rights movement. At the same time, he doesn't have the scars of the movement because of how he grew up. He has not been knocked around as much by the past. Uh, anyway, this piece goes on at some length. Once again, it's in the February 2 New Yorker talk of the town. And uh, it ends, let's see, Lewis approached Obama with a commemorative photograph asking him to sign it. And the president wrote, because of you, John Barack Obama. <laughs> he knows from whence he came. Let me, I, I want to dip into this uh, biography of Barack's because it just shows you how sensitive uh, he is, how deep he is into world pain. It's funny. Uh, it's interesting that he... Uh, he was rooming with a friend called Sadak in Manhattan. And uh, his even his younger sister said, <laughs> said she was worried he was going to be out there on the soapbox like all the other guys in the street. And uh, his roommate said that he was becoming a bore. You know how that is. Some of us, we just keep venting and talking about how things be so problematic and... Uh, Barack says he was right, and he goes on to talk about uh, his long walks through Manhattan. This guy's into long walks, um, and his pain. He said it was as if all middle ground had collapsed utterly. The collapse was more apparent in the black community than anywhere else. It was there I had so lovingly imagined and within which I had hoped to find refuge. No way, he says, I might wander through Harlem. Anyway, Barack is not finding uh, his place. He's having a little dark night of the soul. And at some point, he has to go and look for his roots. Uh, he is talking to his mother and his younger sister, Maya, Maya's father was his mother's Indonesian husband, Lola, uh, also dead. Barack's father died at age 46 in a car wreck. Anyway, I've already read you the section about uh, his trip to Black Orpheus with his mom. But I want to read you the little section about uh, a talk he has with his mother about his dad, about his father and... Uh, you know how that uh, how that affected the family. Uh, she says to Barack, uh, they're talking about his father coming to visit. She said, uh, uh, 
you know, he'd only come for a month when Barack was ten. And his mother says, now that you're older, you know, maybe you could uh, get to know each other. Then Barack's mother, Anne, <laughs> Miss Anne, folks, her name is Anne Dunham, Stanley Anne Dunham, his mom. She's younger than I. Uh, well, she's dead, but she is uh, about seven or eight years younger than me, and she died of cancer at age 53. And Barack's mother says, it wasn't your father's fault that he left, you know. I divorced him. When the two of us got married, your grandparents weren't happy with the idea. Uh, she means her, her folks, her mother and father. But they said, okay, they probably couldn't have stopped us anyway, and they eventually came around to the idea that it was the right thing to do. But then Barack's father, your grandfather, Hussein, is the one in Kenya, his dad's uh, dead. He wrote Gramps, that's her father, this long, nasty letter saying that he didn't approve of the marriage. He didn't want the Obama blood sullied by a white woman, he said. Well, you can imagine how Gramps reacted to that. And then there was the problem with your father's first wife. Uh, he had told me they were separated, but it was a village wedding, so there was no legal document that could show a divorce. Uh, that's the end of the quote from Barack's mom and... Uh, uh, Barack Obama goes on to write, Her chin had begun to tremble, and she bit down on her lip, steadying herself. She said, Your father wrote back, saying he was going ahead with it, and then you were born. We agreed that the three of us would return to Kenya after he finished his studies. But your grandfather Hussein was still writing to your father, threatening to have his student visa revoked. About this time... Toot, that's uh, Anne's mother, had become hysterical. She had read about the Mau Mau rebellion in Kenya a few years earlier, which the Western press really played up, and she was sure that I would have my head chopped off and you would be taken away. Now, even then, it might have worked out when your father graduated from uh, UH, that's the University of Hawaii. He received two scholarship offers. One was to the new school here in New York. The other one was to Harvard. Now, the new school agreed to pay for everything, room and board, a job on campus, enough to support all three of us. Harvard just agreed to pay tuition. Oh, but your father was such a stubborn bastard, he had to go to Harvard. Now, how can I refuse the best education, he told me. That's all he could think about proving that he was the best. She sighed, running her hands through her hair. We were so young, you know. I was younger than you are now, and he was only a few years older than that. Later, when he came to visit us in Hawaii that time, he wanted us to come live with him, but I was still married to Lolo then, and his third wife had just left him, and I just didn't think... She stopped and laughed to herself. Did I ever tell you that he was late for our first date? He asked me to meet him in front of the university library at one. When I got there, he hadn't arrived, but I figured I'd give him a few minutes. It was a nice day. I laid out on one of the benches, and before I knew it, I'd fallen asleep. Well, 
An hour later, an hour, he shows up with a couple of his friends. I woke up and the three of them were standing over me. And I heard your father saying, serious as can be, you see, gentlemen, I told you that she was a fine girl and that she would wait for me. My mother laughed once more and once again I saw her as the child she had been. Except this time I saw something else. In her smiling, slightly puzzled face, I saw what all children must see at some point if they are to grow up. They see their parents' lives revealed to them as separate and apart, reaching out beyond the point of their union or the birth of the child. Their lives unfurling back to grandparents, great-grandparents, an infinite number of chance meetings, misunderstandings, projected hopes, limited circumstances. My mother was that girl with her movie of beautiful black people in her head, flattered by my father's attention, confused, alone, trying to break out of the grip of her own parents' lives. The innocence she carried that day waiting for my father had been tinged with misconceptions, with her own needs. But it was a guileless need, one without self-consciousness. Perhaps that is how any love begins. Impulses and cloudy images that allow us to break across our solitude. Then, if we're lucky... The impulses are finally transformed into something firmer. What I heard from my mother that day speaking about my father was something that I suspect most Americans will never hear from the lips of those of another race and so cannot be expected to believe might exist between black and white. The love of someone who knows your life in the round, a love that will survive disappointment. She saw my father as everyone hopes at least one other person might see him. She had tried to help the child who never knew him see him in the same way. It was the look on her face that day that I would remember when... A few months later, I called to tell her that my father had died and heard her cry out over the distance. Um, Barack was planning a trip to Kenya when, his, uh, when one of his half-sisters in Kenya called to say that his father had been killed in a car wreck. His father was 46. He goes on to write, after I spoke to my mother, I phoned my father's brother in Boston. We had a brief, awkward conversation. I didn't go to the funeral, so I wrote my father's family in Nairobi. I wrote a letter expressing my condolences, asked them to write back, wondered how they were faring, but I, I felt no pain, only a vague sense of an opportunity lost. I saw no reason to pretend otherwise. My plans to travel to Kenya were placed on indefinite hold. Another year would pass before I would meet him one night in a cold cell, in a chamber of my dreams,
I dreamed I was traveling by bus with friends whose names I've forgotten. Men and women with different journeys to make, we rolled across deep fields of grass and hills that buckled against an orange sky. An old white man, heavy set, sat beside me. I read in a book that he held in his hands that our treatment of the old tested our souls. He told me he was a union man off to meet his daughter. I've written in parenthesis here that I think it's his his uh, mother's father, but I won't interrupt Barack's uh, writing here because this is so uh, personal. This is his dream continuing. He dreams that he's with his father. We stopped at an old hotel, a grand hotel with chandeliers. There was a piano in the lobby, a lounge filled with cushions of soft satin. I took one of the cushions, placed it on the piano bench, and the old white man sat down, retarded now or senile. And when I looked again, he was a small black girl, her feet barely reaching the pedals. She smiled and started to play, and then... A waitress came in, a young Hispanic woman, and the waitress frowned at us. But under the frown was a laugh. She raised a finger to her lips as if we were sharing a secret. I dozed for the rest of the trip and woke up to find everyone gone. The bus came to a halt. I got off and sat down on the curb. Inside a building made of rough stone... A lawyer spoke to a judge. The judge suggested that perhaps my father had spent enough time in his jail and that perhaps it was time to release him. But the lawyer objected vigorously, citing precedent in various statutes, the need to maintain order. The judge shrugged and got up from the bench. I stood before the cell, opened the padlock, and set it carefully on a window ledge. My father was before me. With only a cloth draped around his waist, he was very thin. With his large head and slender frame, his hairless arms and chest, he looked pale, his black eyes luminous against an ashen face. But he smiled and gestured. He told the tall, mute guide to please stand aside. Look at you, he said, so tall and so thin, gray hairs even. I saw it was true. I walked up to him and we embraced. I began to weep. I felt ashamed but could not stop myself. He said, Barack, I always wanted to tell you how much I love you. He seemed small in my arms now, the size of a boy. He sat in the corner of his cot, set his head on his clasped hands and stared away from me into the wall. An implacable sadness spread across his face. I tried to joke with him. I told him that if I was thin, it was only because I took after him, but he couldn't be budged when I whispered to him that we might leave together. He shook his head. He told me it would be best if I left. I awoke still weeping, 
my first real tears for him and for me, his jailer, his judge, his son. Ah, I'm going to finish this piece about Barack's father on another occasion. It's a a sequence in which, through his dreams, he gives birth to himself and in a way gives birth to his father. Many of us have had that dream. This has been Jennifer Stone. Uh, Marathon is this Thursday. I will be back on the air next Tuesday at this same time. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture Drop the shadow Out of Hey KPFA listeners, come answer phones in the upcoming fund drive January 27th through February 13th. You can fulfill your volunteer membership and get discounts on great KPFA-produced premiums like CDs, DVDs, KPFA T-shirts, and coffee mugs. If members of your community group, labor union, or nonprofit volunteer together, your organization will be thanked on the air. So stop by KPFA at 1929 Martin Luther King Way near the corner of University Avenue in Berkeley at any time from January 27th until February 13th. KPFA is wheelchair accessible. Thank you for supporting KPFA Radio.